If you want to get a head start this morning on the message, you can turn to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews 4, we're going to be starting with some verses there in a few minutes. And as you make your way to Hebrews, um, <clears throat> I want to ask you one of those dreaded thought questions that I often start the message with. So use your imagination a little bit. Uh, you might not have to use your imagination a whole lot, but, but I want you to think about this. Think about, let's say, let's say you're at a time in your life when you're really hurting emotionally. Maybe you're grieving. Maybe you're confused. Maybe you're angry and you don't understand what's going on, but, but you've been through some stuff in your life that has just brought you to the edge and, and you really need to talk to somebody. You know that you need to bring someone else in and you need to talk to another human being. To whom will you go? Or maybe there's, there's a real sensitive problem in your life, you know, one that, that could be a little bit embarrassing or shameful to talk about, but it, it, you just feel like you need to share it with, with another person? To whom will you go? Or maybe there's a sin in your life. There's a habit, there's an addiction, there's a struggle that you've been dealing with and has gotten out of hand, and you know, you know that God wants you to bring somebody else in to help you, and you need some accountability, you need some prayer, and you also need some advice and some guidance as to how to deal with it and how to get through it. To whom will you go? Now, you might have a name in mind. If you do, that's great. Uh, it, it's, that's a good thing. But I'm also asking you, really, what kind of a person are you looking for? What characteristics are you looking for in a person that you would trust with something like that? What, what qualifies someone to play that kind of a role in your life when you're dealing with that kind of thing? Well, you might say, well, it's, it should be somebody who knows me well. Well, probably. Although, yes, it's, sometimes it's good to get an outside voice or talk to someone who can be more objective about things, but it's probably somebody who knows you well, and if they don't know you well, they're going to get to know you pretty well through the process, so you need someone that you can trust to get close to relationally. Uh, some of you would also say this, well, if, if I've got these problems, I need someone with some expertise. I need someone maybe with some experience, I need someone with some wisdom and insight that can actually help me solve the problem. That would be good. Others of you, and I'm going to say this is in all likelihood the majority of you, will say something like this. Well, yes, I want someone who can help me solve my problem. But even more than that, I'm looking for someone who understands. Looking for someone who can identify with me and to some extent can sympathize with me in what I'm going through. I need someone who will listen and not just talk. I need someone who will enter in with me and take the time to understand what I'm going through. In fact, if they've been through the same struggle that I'm going through, that's even a bonus. That would be a good thing. Then they could really relate. Above all, some of you would say, I want someone who will not come down on me, condemn me, or think less of me because of my problem. And that means I, I need someone who is not sporting a halo, right? Someone who, is not, who doesn't come off as holier than thou. Someone who doesn't always give off the air of having it all together. I want someone who will approach me not from above and come down to me, but I want someone who will approach me from the side, right? Someone who has, maybe they have a few scars, and that's okay. 
Someone who won't run away from me yelling unclean, unclean when they find out the truth about me. And if they know the truth, that's okay because this person also has feet of clay and, and doesn't pretend to be perfect. And so I, I really need someone who's, who's real. What if I told you that I knew someone like this and I could introduce you to him? A person who could understand everything you're going through, who will not come down on you or magnify your shame or embarrassment, and who has the wisdom and experience to actually help you solve the problem itself. How much would you pay for a counselor or a friend or a confidant like that? I know what you're saying. You're saying, it's Sunday and we're in church. And so Pastor Paul's probably talking about Jesus. Yes, I am referring to Jesus. But one of the things that I want you to walk away with today, maybe the main thing I want you to walk away with today, is a better appreciation for the Jesus that you've got if you're his follower, and some of what he offers you and who he is. So let's talk about Jesus for a few minutes, and to do that, we're going to read Hebrews 4, starting in verse 14, and we're going to read through verse 10 of chapter 5, not as long as it sounds. 4.14, since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, this is obviously a pretty deep passage. Uh, we're not going to talk a whole lot about this guy Melchizedek today, um, although it's a fun word to say, Melchizedek. Um, but but I, again, as TJ mentioned, starting February 4th, uh, that Sunday school class, if you get involved in it, the elders are teaching it, we'll be doing a deep dive for you into the book of Hebrews. And so you'll have plenty of opportunity to learn about Melchizedek, everything you ever wanted to know and more if you get involved in that class. The main thrust of this passage, however, and, and really the main thrust in some ways of the whole book of Hebrews is that, this, that Jesus has all the qualifications to be our great high priest, to be our high priest. Now, we don't think about high priest a whole lot in our culture. What's a high priest? As a matter of fact, what's a priest? You might be familiar with the, the term priest, obviously, if you've known anything about the Catholic or Episcopal churches or anywhere where they have priests. But, but what is a priest, technically speaking? Well, the simplest definition of a priest is this. A priest is someone who represents other people before God. 
Basically, it was defined in verse 1 of chapter 5 there like that. A priest is someone who represents other people before God. Often when we talk about Jesus, you'll hear Jesus referred to by his offices. He's got three offices that are kind of famous, prophet, priest, and king. And the prophet, priest, and the king are three types of people that kind of stand between God and humanity. The king rules people on behalf of God. The prophet speaks to people on behalf of God, representing God to the people and speaking the words of God to the people. But the priest is the only one that goes in the other direction. The priest is in some ways the reverse of the prophet. He actually speaks to God on behalf of the people. But what he does is is he speaks the words of the people to God, and really in the same way that the prophet will speak the words of God to the people. The priest is, is the people's representative before God. He is their helper. He is their champion. He is their advocate. If you're the head of your household, uh, a husband and father, maybe a single mom, uh, maybe in, in some cases a grandparent, you can think of yourself and should think of yourself as the priest of your family. You have the privilege and responsibility of representing your family before the throne of God. And when you come to God, you bring not only your own concerns, but also the concerns and needs of your family members before the Lord, and you plead with Him in prayer on their behalf. Have you ever thought of yourself as the priest of your family? Maybe it's a good thing to consider today. Well, you can also think of Jesus that way, right? I mean, Jesus brings the needs of his family, the church, before the Father. He is pleading for us. He is advocating for us. He is standing in for us. He is speaking up for us right now before the Father on our behalf. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, who ever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. Do you know the Jesus who is your high priest? Are you aware, as the last line of that song says, that no one can ever kick you out of God's presence because no one can ever kick Jesus out of God's presence and Jesus has your name written on his hands and his heart? Just like that high priest in the nation of Israel had the names of the tribes of Israel written on his garments. So Jesus is for you. But you might say, well, how does does Jesus qualify for this role? Well, the author of Hebrews goes to great lengths in this passage and other places to show that God the Father appointed Jesus to this role. Jesus didn't take it upon himself. It was given to him. He was, was appointed the role. But beyond that, why is he so good at it? Why is Jesus so, such a good and perfect priest? Why is he the perfect person to stand before God on your behalf and mine? Well, let's go back to our initial question that I asked you at the beginning. What are you looking for on someone you'll go to when you have a real need, when you need to have someone stand in for you in a sense? I was really asking you, who do you go to when you need an advocate? Who do you go to when in a sense you need a priest? Well, Jesus can qualify, first of all, because he knows what you're going through. He knows what you're going through. How? Because he's been there, so he really does understand. In fact, in verse 15 of chapter 4, it says he has been tempted, did you hear this? In every respect, just as we've been tempted. 
in every respect. Now, I don't think we realize how radical and downright scandalous that verse sounds until we get away from some of the abstract ideas and we start asking some specific questions about Jesus, like these. Was Jesus ever tempted to lose his temper and cuss somebody out? Probably, yeah. Was Jesus ever tempted sexually? Was Jesus ever tempted to cut corners in his work as a carpenter to save time and money? Was Jesus ever tempted to strike out at someone, either verbally or physically, and get some well-deserved revenge? Was Jesus ever tempted to gossip or overshare or talk about someone inappropriately? Was Jesus ever tempted during a difficult time to seek solace in alcohol or overeating? Was Jesus ever tempted to goof off all day when he knew that he had work to do? Was Jesus ever tempted to lie or tell a half-truth just to get someone off his back or get out of a tight situation or avoid a difficult conversation? This is real, folks, right? This is where the rubber meets the road. Was Jesus tempted in all these ways? If Hebrews 4.15 is right, then the answer to all of those questions has to be yes, even though it seems strange to us. Now, what does it mean that the Bible would share something like that about Jesus? What kind of a religion would admit to something like this about their God? What kind of a God would risk losing the awe and respect of his worshipers by putting himself in these positions and subjecting himself to that kind of weakness and then to tell tell us so openly about it in his holy book? What kind of a God would do that? I'll tell you one thing, not any God that you or I would make up. There's something shockingly different about the God of the Bible. Think about what this means. The fact that Jesus has been tempted in every area you've been tempted in means that you can go to him with everything. And it means you can go to him with the whole truth. The whole truth when you're being tempted, when you're suffering, when you're struggling, when you're hurting, and even when you fail. Because he understands. He understands, not just in general terms, but very specifically, he understands the actual struggle that you've been facing because he faced it himself. Not only that, but I believe he faced it more intensely than you ever did. Why do I say that? Well, you know how when you get toward the top of a mountain, it becomes steeper and harder to climb? Temptation is like that too, at least for a time. The longer you hold out, the harder it is. And you can bet that Satan threw everything he had at Jesus, including the kitchen sink, when he saw the kind of resistance that Jesus was capable of putting up. Look at chapter 5, verse 8, though. That is probably the most scandalous verse of all. It says there that Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. What in the world does that mean? You mean the eternal Son of God actually had to learn stuff? How is that possible? Well, it's possible because Jesus actually became a man. He became an actual, full-fledged human being. And as a man, he had to learn, just like we have to learn. Yes, he had to learn the content of the Bible. He wasn't born knowing all those verses from the Old Testament. He had to read them, just like we do, understand them. But it wasn't just content knowledge. Jesus had to learn some other things, a lot of things, through experience. Because although he, in a sense, knew everything, even as God, and as man, he didn't in, in the same way. But he had, to act, he had never actually gone through things. 
He needed to learn what it was like to hurt as a man, as a human being. He needed to learn what it was like to suffer loss as a human being. He had to learn what it was like to not always have all of the answers in that God the Father had actually withheld some knowledge from Jesus' mind, for instance, the day of his return. He had to learn what it was like to be rejected and abandoned and mistreated as a man. He also had to learn how to pray. Did you ever think about that one? Like we have to learn how to pray. Jesus had to pray. In fact, he even had to learn in the Garden of Gethsemane what it felt like to have a prayer go unanswered, to pour your heart out to God and then not get the answer you were hoping for. Now, did God hear him in the garden the night before he died? Yes, it says so right here in the passage. Did God answer him? Yes. But he did it by taking him through the pain and not around it. Yes, Jesus does really know what it's like to be you. He knows exactly what it's like. The TV commercials are right. He gets us, all of us. He's been there. And then get this, because this is the next thing we were looking for if we're going to open up to somebody. Jesus not only understands what you're going through, but he will not pour condemnation down on your head. He won't do it. Look at verse 2. It says there a good priest can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward. Why? Because he himself is beset with weakness. Now, let's admit there's a difference, right? There's a difference because Jesus, unlike every other priest, never sinned. So he didn't need to bring in a sacrifice for his own sins. But he still understands why it happens. He knows what leads to your sin. He knows the road that leads up to your sin. He just didn't take the same exit. But he can absolutely relate. And this allows him to deal gently with people who are hurting and broken and who come to him repentant and looking for help. Have you ever noticed in the Gospels that the more broken a person is, the gentler Jesus is in dealing with them? It is amazing. If you think about it, it is amazing how approachable Jesus is. How approachable he is. I mean, here's this guy, this teacher, this master teacher with a huge following. That's intimidating, isn't it? He does miracles. That's intimidating. He stands up to corrupt and hypocritical leaders with fire in his eyes, and he tells them off. That's intimidating. Wouldn't it be hard to go up to this guy and approach him? You'd think, and yet hurting people come flocking to this guy, and he runs to them, and he embraces them, and he treats them and speaks to them gently. What about you? What about you? Do you think that if you completely leveled with Jesus about everything, everything you've done, everything you've thought, everything you're feeling, everything you're going through, no matter how weird, no matter how shameful, no matter how inappropriate it might seem, if you did that and you really leveled with him, do you think he'd come down on you? There's a beautiful prophecy in Isaiah 42 about the Messiah, Jesus, and how we're going to recognize him. It says this, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not extinguish. A bruised reed. Have you ever been at the point where you're so hurting, and you're so upset, and you're so on the edge, that if someone so much as touches you the wrong way, or says one wrong word to you, or does any little thing to hurt you just one more time, you're going to snap? Have you been there? 
Or the smoldering wick. Have you been to a place where you're just spent? You're out of patience, you're out of energy, and you're pretty much out of tears because you spent them all. It's like you're down to your last little glowing ember and all someone has to do is come in with two little fingers and snuff out your last hope. It would be so easy to do. Brothers and sisters, Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't. He knows how to deal gently with you. He will not break that reed. He will not extinguish that last little flame. You can trust him. You can go to him. And you can be absolutely honest with him. And blunt, for that matter. You can be straight with him. Now, here's an important question we need to face, though, as kind of an aside, because it's going to come up as you go to Jesus and you know who he is. Why doesn't he condemn us? Why doesn't he condemn us? I mean, yes, he, he understands. Yes, maybe he can identify with our temptation. But, hey, he didn't give in to it. So he could say, you know, I've been through this and a lot worse, and I didn't mess up like you just did. Not to mention, he, he's, he's still holy. He's still God. We're still sinners deserving of shame and condemnation. So what makes him hold back when he certainly could and maybe even should bring the hammer down on us? What allows Jesus to be so gentle and merciful and patient? John chapter 8. There's a woman who's caught in the very act of committing adultery. Think about that one. And she is kneeling helplessly before Jesus And at the end of the story, she hears these amazing words. Neither do I condemn you. Neither do I condemn you. How is that possible? It's possible because in the words of a song that Michael Card once wrote about this from the woman's point of view, in this new light now I understood he would not condemn me, though he could, for he would be condemned someday for me. That's exactly right. You see, this is the high priest, the only high priest who offered not the blood of a bird, not the blood of a goat or a lamb, but his own perfect human blood as a sacrifice for you. And if you're trusting in him, the reason he doesn't come down on you, the reason he doesn't condemn you is because all the condemnation has all been used up. The cup has already been poured out all the way. There's none left. It all fell on him. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1, because there's none left. It's all been absorbed. It's all been received. And as a result of all this, look at verse, four, or verse 16 of chapter 4 here in Hebrews. How do we approach the throne? It says there we approach the throne with confidence. That's how, with confidence. You do not need to walk on eggshells with Jesus, Amen. ever. You can open up all the way. You can level with him. You start where you're at, wherever you're at, no matter how beat up you feel, no matter how guilty you feel, no matter how messed up you are right now, start where you are. And don't pretend that you're a step higher than you are. Start right there. Just level with him. It's great we can do that. But it doesn't stop there. Because what we said was we also needed one more requirement we're looking for in an advocate And Jesus can do it. He can go beyond just identifying with us, and he can help us solve the problem itself. Notice how he was tempted in every way that we were, yet without sin. And so we also get mercy and grace to help 
in our time of need. 1 Corinthians 8.13 says that every temptation, every struggle we face comes with something attached. It's called the way out. And Jesus knows how to show us the way out because he found it and he took it. So he leads us there. When you come to him, Jesus will come to you. He will remind you sometimes of passages in his word that apply to your situation. Sometimes he'll speak back to you in prayer, maybe not audibly, but very specifically to impress upon you the truth that you need to understand. Most of all, you need to remember that he has put his Holy Spirit within you. And so all the other things that follow that Romans 8 one and the rest of Romans 8, how it talks about how the Spirit breaks the power of sin in our lives and how the Spirit reminds us all the time that God is our loving, adoptive Father and how the Spirit helps us when we don't know what to pray by groaning alongside of us according to God's will. All that stuff is real. And it comes from Jesus through the Holy Spirit. Jesus doesn't stop at sympathy. He provides solutions. He doesn't just come down into the valley to walk side by side with us, as wonderful as that is. He actually leads us through it and out the other side as we follow him. Now, here's another question a few of you have been asking for the last 20 minutes or so. Aren't we supposed to be in a series about the core values of First Alliance Church? What happened to that cool graphic? Did Pastor Paul forget that he was supposed to be preaching on one of the things on the poster there over above the door? Well, these days that would not be completely outside the realm of possibility for me, I admit. But in this case, I didn't forget. It's just that we're coming at this core value, which is authenticity, through the back door. I don't know if it's consistent to come at authenticity through the back door, but that's what we're doing. We believe, as a church, that authenticity needs to be part of our calling card, part of what makes us distinctive and what defines us. And here's how we define that word. We are real with God and one another. We are real with God and we're real with one another. And the reason I spent so much time today talking about the priestly approachability of Jesus is that if you and I can't be real with him, then we will never be real with each other or anybody else that comes walking through those doors. If we can't come to Jesus honestly, openly, completely, and confidently with our issues, then our church is going to be just like that scene at the beginning of Act 2 of Phantom of the Opera. Masquerade, here at First Alliance Church, here's your mask, you know. Some of you have been at church like that. Maybe we could be a little more accurate, though, because we don't necessarily put on masks and pretend to be somebody else. We, we, that's a little too extreme for us to, to admit to. I've heard it described in a book I really like on this subject, not in terms of masks, but in terms of layers, as in protective layers, protective layers like padding we strap onto our bodies. You ever see those like sumo wrestler outfits you can put on in a game like kids do all the time at youth rallies and they'll bounce against each other with the big sumo tummies trying to knock each other out of the circle? That's what we wear in church. These layers are the padding that we strap on around ourselves so that no one can ever really get too close to us. Let me give you an example. My, My layer might be my sense of humor. I might avoid getting too deep into a conversation or getting too uh, you know, serious or, or uncomfortable by just making a joke of everything. Your layer might be something different. You might be more intellectual. So you might avoid deep conversation or getting too serious about stuff by analyzing everything to death. So you don't really need to deal with it plainly. Another person might be like edgy or prickly and they're hard to get close to at all. Another person might be real shy and reserved and they'll avoid eye contact so you can't really tell where the avenue is to get into to their life. But we all have 
these defense mechanisms. We all have these layers, and, and typically when we first start to relate to each other, and this is okay because we just, we just have met, right? But usually when we meet each other and we first start to relate, it's not me talking to you. It's my layer talking to your layer. And our layers may have a great time together. But if First Alliance Church is going to be a place of healing and transformation for broken people, then we can't stay in that place. We've got to find a way to shed our layers and be real with one another. We have to learn as the individuals who make up the church how to be appropriately open with each other and invite other people to do the same. And if we do that, then our church atmosphere as a whole will reflect this kind of openness, and then people will open up to us, and better yet, they'll open up to Jesus. Authenticity means that at First Alliance Church of Lexington, North Carolina, nobody should ever have to walk on eggshells for fear of being ostracized or gossiped about or condemned. This should be a place where people should eventually, hopefully sooner rather than later, feel free to be themselves, whether before God or before one another. That's one of our core values. Now, I am not saying that we all have to be totally open and shockingly transparent in every single conversation we have with each other. That's not what I'm saying. Total openness is not the answer. Now, welcome to First Lines Church, where life is a train wreck and we're all a basket case. You know, <laughs> Turn to the person next to you and tell them the most horrible thing you did or thought or said this week. That's one way to get the attendance down, close to zero. But it wouldn't be right. That's not it. However, however, at the very least, we need to resist the urge to present ourselves as more together than we really are. And we need to develop, each of us, the courage to take a conversation to a deeper level and invite the other people to go there with us. And by the way, since I've already given you one advertisement for the Hebrew Sunday School class, let me give you an advertisement for the other one, the one that I'll be teaching starting in February. The ministry of encouragement is all about how to break through these layers we tend to strap on and invite open and honest communication that can lead to people being healed. We have to be that kind of a church. A few years ago, I got an update, an email update from one of our Alliance missionaries, and she's serving in in a very difficult place. And in this email, she shared how ministry was sometimes so hard and so slow and so lonely that it sometimes brought her to the edge of depression. And on some days, she just felt like doing nothing but vegging in front of the TV for the whole day. Now, that was kind of gutsy, don't you think, for a missionary to put in a letter that goes out to the people who are sending her money to keep her on the mission field? What do the donors think? Goodness, what would the national office think? I'll tell you what I thought. You know what I thought? I thought, wow, this missionary seems to be a human being. Praise God that she's willing to tell the truth. First of all, now I know how to pray for her more accurately. And even beyond that, I can relate to her because all of us in ministry struggle at times with low motivation, at times when it seems like nothing's happening or nothing's changing or God is distant and we're tempted to just pack it in. And her openness gave me the permission to face up to my own struggles in that area with more honesty and authenticity. And if I ever get to the point where I've got to share that struggle with another worker, I just found someone I can send an email to. Now, if a missionary can open up like that to her supporters, might we be able to be a little bit more open and honest with each other here in church? We need to kind of wind things up and tie them together. So let me just draw us to a close by taking you back to this idea of Jesus as our high priest. Because you need to know that, that you're also a priest. 
you're also a priest. It was actually in, in one of the Peter verses that we read this morning. You are a priest, whether you know it or not, whether you like it or not. You are, you're not the high priest. Jesus is the high priest. But if you're a follower of Jesus, the Bible says that you are part of a royal priesthood. You're a priest. What's a priest? Remember, a priest is someone who represents other people before God. And as part of the body of Christ, you and I are called to continue his priestly ministry by praying for people, being present with people, being there for people, advocating for people, and leading people to God into his presence. A lot of churches are really good at the prophet part, right? In other words, they represent Jesus by telling people how sinful they are and how much they need to change. And there's a place for doing that kind of thing, gently and graciously speaking the truth in love without compromise, absolutely. But listen, if that's all we do, no matter how sensitive and accurate we are, and we don't get the priest part, all we're going to do is drive people away. We have to be approachable because our Savior was approachable. And just like we're able to approach him in spite of our brokenness, people should be able to approach us and approach him with us in spite of their brokenness. And that starts when you and I learn to stand absolutely transparent, helpless, and yes, confident before the throne of God. Because our high priest made that possible by shedding his own blood on our behalf, taking away our sin and banishing our shame forever. What do we have to lose? Let's pray as the worship team comes.